Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. For the last few years, populism has upended electoral politics in developed and developing countries alike. As the gap between the rich and poor widens, more people are looking to leaders who can challenge the quote-unquote establishment and promise to quote-unquote make things great again. Ours was a movement of the people, and it really was. It was Populist a... leaders have come to power in 11 countries in Europe. From Geert Wilders to Marine Le Pen and from Viktor Orban to Matteo Salvini, the figureheads of European populism have been making waves at the ballot box in recent years. Votre quartier, votre village, l'école de vos enfants. We have to limit immigration. We have to stop Islamization. Matteo Salvini. As well as in India, the Philippines, Turkey, and Brazil. And they are targeting immigration, global trade rules, international institutions, and central banks. Why? Alison Schrager says it's all about uncertainty. Despite record low unemployment and a booming stock market, there is a widespread sense among voters on both the left and the right that the future is precarious. People experienced, well, gee, I could lose this all. I could lose my house. I could lose my job, and it could take me two years to find another because that just happened. So people are living with this awareness that they face all this risk. And increasingly, many have been willing to take a gamble on populist leaders' promises of economic security. Will it work? In this episode, we speak with Alison Schrager to find out. She's an economist and a lecturer at New York University and the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Alison, it is really hard to ignore the rise of populism around the world. And when you try to understand it, I think a lot of people point to globalization as a cause. Other people look to um, economic policies that favor the rich, such as regressive tax reforms. How does economics fuel the rise of populism? So I think there's something to those, but not in the way people think. Because what we're seeing is between globalization and technology is the economy is definitely changing. And we don't know what it's going to be. We don't know if you're going to if your job's going to even exist in 10 years. So we all just have are living with a lot of uncertainty and risk. In a lot of ways, people's living standards have gone have improved a lot. Even in developed countries where they're dealing with a lot more inequality, for sure, but they also are living better than they were even in the 80s. Yet people are so dissatisfied. And it seems like a bit of a puzzle, but it's not because, you know, we have so much risk and uncertainty. So even if your living standard seems like it's improving, I think we all live with this mortal fear that we're going to lose it all. And there's a lot of evidence that times of risk and uncertainty tend to re- increase more populism. Uh, in the Middle Ages, like variable crop cycles, which was how people lived, you know, because agriculture was, was a primary agricultural economy, were correlated with increases in witch trials and persecution of Jews. You just generally see more populism, more needs for authoritarianism, strong men, w- when the economy is more uncertain. So you talk about uncertainty, but when I take a look at the economy today in the United States. The stock market's doing pretty well. Unemployment has never been at its lowest. What's the uncertainty that people are feeling? That it could go away. I mean, we're also coming off a financial crisis, and you could argue, well, you know, it was bad for a couple of years, but now we're back stronger than ever. So why are people so upset? But people experienced, well, gee, I could lose this all. I could feel secure. I could lose my house. I could lose my job, and it could take me two years to find another because that just happened. So people are living with this awareness that they face all this risk. 
how does technology factor into this and the, the rise of kind of all of these digital platforms? I look at self-driving cars. We talk about automation and robots taking over jobs. Before, you'd face what economists call a lot of idiosyncratic risk in your job. Like maybe this particular job is not going to work out. Maybe you hate your boss. Maybe you're a bad fit culturally. Maybe this particular company will go out of business because it's poorly run. But that's actually a fairly easy risk to manage. You just you can get another job. But there's also something called systematic risk, which is the risk to the whole system that is going to be fundamentally different. In finance, it means that the whole stock market crashes. So owning lots of stocks doesn't do anything if all stocks fall together. And the way I think about it for the new economy is now it's not just a risk that your particular company or your particular job might go away. Your whole occupation might go away or all the companies in your field might disappear. And this is going to happen, as said, if you're a truck driver and we move to, you know, automated trucks. Even if you're a lawyer, you know, there's more and more AI that could take away that job. So I think people are, they face this bigger, more profound risk that's a lot harder to manage, that their whole profession might go away. If populism is rooted in economic uncertainty, what policies could roll it back? Certainly a stronger safety net. Certainly better retraining. So people feel like they can still thrive in the economy or sort of get better training to begin with so they can learn how to reskill. And what, what does that mean when you say safety net? Well, I mean, for instance, knowing that if you lose your job, you'll still have health care. Knowing that, you know, you'll still have a source of income. Feeling like your community will still thrive somehow. I am a big fan of economic history. They don't really teach it much as in the U.S., but I am... Um, I did my undergrad in the UK, where you're forced to spend two years reading a lot of economic history. And so I'm a big, big fan of Joel Mulker, who's one of the best uh, uh, um, scholars on the Industrial Revolution. And I think people underestimate how much social unrest that caused that source of uncertainty. I mean, it took like 150 years for things to kind of, you know, work itself out. The idea that you would work away from home The idea that someone would tell you what to do, the idea that you'd spent years, generations being the small-scale artisan and now a machine could do your job, caused a lot of unrest then too. You know, you didn't really have a foundation in place. You had an agrarian economy that went to an industrial economy, and it took years for us to figure out what are the best regulations and ways of supporting that. Like universal education became a big part of that. You know, as I said, welfare became a big part of that. Eventually, healthcare became a big part of it. And to some degree, we still have an economy that was built for what economics was in their middle half of the 20th century, where you had these sort of very stable long-term jobs that provided you a pension, and healthcare was tied to those jobs. As we move to a gig economy, it's not really clear that those institutions really make sense, and that maybe it becomes more important to not have healthcare tied to an individual job, not to have retirement benefits tied to an individual job, that you need more flexibility so people can feel they can thrive in this economy and aren't still stuck with institutions that were for an economy that was maybe 75 years old. So that leads me to ask about the actual policies that populists often pursue. Mm -hmm. How do populist leaders typically manage or maybe mismanage the economy? Well, a lot of ways. I mean, the number one thing populists tend to do, as I said, I was talking about in the Middle Ages, is they look for scapegoats. So this population is, it's not that the economy is changing this fundamental ways, which would be great for your great grandkids, but you're going to have a messy time in the meantime. That's not really a winning message. So instead, it's like, you know, this particular group, they're causing all your problems. So if we just get rid of them or marginalize them, then somehow we're going to go back to the way it was before, rather than this more forward looking of how can we make this work now? 
Is there a difference between right-wing and left-wing populists? I used to think they were different, but lately they're sounding more and more the same. I mean, certainly both are very uh, suspicious and critical of trade, which anyway, you know, it can create, I've always, could create winners and losers. It's always been considered a net positive for the economy. Um, certainly uh, both on the left and right are now looking a lot more nationalistic and much more insular. Again, I think they're trying, I appreciate in some ways there's always this kernel of something kind of not bad in what they're doing is that I think they're trying to bring more certainty to people, saying, I can fix this, I can bring you more certainty, which I think becomes a very important role of policy when we have more risk and uncertainty. It's just the means of which they want to do it isn't great. I mean, because you do want a more better, more robust safety net, but you also don't want the government to completely take over either because then that hampers innovation. So you really need to find that right balance. And it seems like both the right and the left wing are looking for this is a one scapegoating, both doing that to some degrees, and also a, a very large role for government. And it's not clear that the right balance is going to be there. But when you certainly look at the rhetoric between Donald Trump and, say, someone like Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. um, you know, Donald Trump representing someone on the right and Bernie Sanders representing someone on the left, their rhetoric might sound the same in terms of the things that you just pointed out, whether it's tariffs or the wealth gap, but their policies are quite different. Some of their policies are different. I mean, you certainly see populism on the left. We're seeing it with a lot of the presidential candidates or sort of the move back to rent control, which economists have always thought of as sort of uniformly thought were a bad idea. Super high minimum wages that haven't been tested, like, you know, putting a $15 minimum wage into Alabama, maybe not so advisable. But instead, we've also been seeing this a lot on the right. I mean, some of them are different. Some of them are the same. Why is it not advisable to have a $15 minimum wage in Alabama? Right now, the median wage is about, I think it's like $16. So effectively, you're saying, like, that's the median wage. You're saying everyone's going to get paid a lot more. And you know what? You have a lot of small businesses that have very low margins. So you're asking them to sort of effectively double their wages uh, not that long a time. And, you know, if you're a growing economy, if you're like Seattle and it's an economic boom, you know, that might be okay. But if you're a struggling economy where you have a lot of small business owners, then that can really impact people in a negative way. So what's the best response in this case? I mean, the populists want to come in and want to help the people. But what is the best response in a situation like that? Well, it's populist in in that the rhetoric often on the left, as I said, we talk a lot more about the rhetoric on the right, and it's horrible, too, in a different way, is, you know, to blame an other, to blame a group. And what we're seeing a lot with the leftist populace is blaming anyone who, uh, business owners and corporations. And I think we can all agree, or most people can agree, that, you know, we live in a society where people should be paid a certain amount. Like, people shouldn't fall too far behind. And I think with sort of mainstream economists versus leftists, the difference of opinion is who pays for that? Right? Should it be corporations, these faceless business owners, or should we all as a society share in that? That's why economists tend to favor things like the earned income tax credit, because it means taxpayers top up wages. So people live in a way that we find acceptable versus putting it on business owners. You talk about the Industrial Revolution and how there was populism that arose there. How did populism subside? after the Industrial Revolution, how long did it take? 
it took hundreds of years. And I think, you know, to some degree, there's a cycle of innovation where initially it does displace people. And, you know, economists tend to say that very flippantly, and, you know, to our detriment, because, you know, that could be like two generations of people, which is not nothing. But in the end, as I said, it kind of works out. I mean, certainly... Uh, with move, the move to factory work it was very disruptive for like two or three generations. And it actually became the foundation of universal schooling is that men had a really hard time back then. You know, it's it's ironic to me that we are so worried about men losing factory jobs as a sort of decline of masculinity, because back in the Industrial Revolution, the idea that as a man you had to go somewhere and be told what to do all day and you couldn't come and go as you wanted was considered incredibly emasculating. And According to Joe Mulker, the foundations of universal schooling was to socially condition men to be sat and be told what to do all day. But this took like a couple hundred years to work itself out. And it was a pretty messy process along the way. And along the way, you also saw these huge disparities. You saw tons of wealth inequality, like with the Gilded Age. And eventually, you know, I hate to use the word trickle down because it's gotten so abused, but it does kind of happen over time. It might just take a couple hundred years. The gains got more shared. You had unionization. It said better institutions in place to better redistribute. And eventually it did work itself out. But it might not happen in our lifetimes. But we live in an age right now where we're not willing to wait for two generations. Nor should we. Um, because we know a lot more than we did in the Industrial Revolution. So that's a good thing. As I said, this is why we should listen to economists. And Granada, you know, take that for what it is because I'm one and I think people should listen to me. But, you know, we do know policies. As I said, we can, we can sort of, as I said, have that stronger safety net. We can sort of, you know, have institutions in place that support people if they're not going to be in the same job their whole lifetime. We can make sure there's retirement security. There's all these things we can do to ease the transition. Because, you know, you didn't really have economics back then. And you didn't really have, you know, good policies. You didn't have a great tax base. You know, we don't really need to wait it out a couple hundred years. But I think the move towards populism is worrying because that could take us off track. How does that affect long-term planning? And here I want to pick up on what you just said, blaming the other. And when you when you look at some of the policies that particularly Donald Trump has pursued, it has been in favor of tariffs, of closing the border, in the short term, that might be effective, but how does that impact long-term economic planning? I don't even think in the short run it's effective. You know, as we can see with all this sort of, you know, stock market volatility, you know, the threat of a trade war is impacting people's pocketbooks right now. It's bad in the short run and in the long run. I mean, first of all, less trade means, you know, less growth. And certainly it also is causing an immense amount of uncertainty. And there's a cost to uncertainty and that people feel more risk as it's become more expensive. So you certainly, it's, 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 none of it is good. We want our country back. We want our country back. Say it with me. We You're not happy in the U.S. if you're complaining all the time, very simply, you can leave. You can leave right now. Because I want a better deal for the people of this country, to save them money and to take back control. That's really, I think, what this is all, uh, this is all about. Typically, populists use nationalist rhetoric to appeal to the public. And we've certainly seen this in the United States with Donald Trump. We've seen it among the pro-Brexit people in the United Kingdom, as well as in places like Poland, Hungary, and Italy. How does this advance the economic policies that populist politicians pursue? 
I think it makes them people feel like these people are in charge and they're safe. I think what's attractive about a populist agenda is you feel like someone's in charge. I mean, look at the rhetoric around this. Like, I can fix this. I'm going to make this better. I'm going to bring back something. So you sort of, they get license to do whatever they want. You know, I think Donald Trump certainly has a lot of license to sort of cause some economic damage because he sort of seems very much like he's going to take care of us. I mean, if you support him, I guess you'd feel that way. You know, in, in that you feel like, all right, I'm willing to sort of deal with some short-term economic pain. Anyway, people's 401ks are sort of flailing all over the place. So I think it gives them a lot of license to pursue what they want to pursue, although I'm not quite sure what the broader economic agenda is. You know, I'm I'm not ever sure populists have a long-term economic agenda. I want to dig a little deeper into uncertainty and whether the rise in populism is actually rooted in economics, or is there also a relationship to the societal changes that we see? And by this, I mean, we are seeing a change in demographics here in the United States. We are seeing migration as an, is at an all-time high around the world. I mean, I'm not a sociologist. So, I mean, I think certainly that might be part of it. I don't really know for sure. But my guess is, is that if everyone was getting richer and felt very secure about the world, they probably wouldn't be that bothered. You know, because people, when they can feed their families and they feel secure that their kids are going to have the same life they are, I don't think they're so bothered that, you know, they hear Spanish in the supermarket. We've been talking a lot about the United States and the U.K., Does the rise of populism in emerging market countries such as India, the Philippines, and Turkey, do they have similar causes? Um, I reckon so. I mean, I don't really know as much about it. But as I said, globally, we're all facing a lot of upheaval. I mean, even look at, say, China, you know, where people are definitely getting a lot richer. But they're also facing these huge fundamental challenges, which are always threatening, even as if you're getting richer along the way. And certainly a lot more pressure. It's a lot more high-pressured economy. So you can see how this idea of authoritarianism, of feeling taken care of, become very popular, sort of very seductive. Like what we're seeing in every country is a more high-stakes economy, where you get these superstars who do well and everyone else gets left behind. You know, sort of like if you don't get on that path, it's sort of terrifying. So is your neighbor going to get that and you're not? Is your kid not going to get into the right school and then be completely shut out of having a successful life. And, you know, you certainly see this in these developing markets that are growing so fast. Certainly that becomes a bigger issue. You know, certainly when I was growing up and I would travel to Turkey with my mother, we'd fill up our suitcases with all sorts of things, coffee, tea, Levi's jeans, chocolates, Mm -hmm. saran wrap, Reynolds wrap, like you name it. Like we just would, we would never like take like clothes with us. We would just take things for other people. You know, it was always this thing, it was like so great to get stuff from the United States because they didn't have anything in Turkey. And there was always this pull of like, we want to get into the European Union, or I would talk to other Turks and it was always just like, you're so lucky you live in America. Now I go to Turkey, I go with an empty suitcase and I fill up on things that come from there. Interesting. And there is definitely a shift in mindset. And people in Turkey are so much more confident. And they're proud. They're proud that their country's economy has grown. They're proud that it's become a fashion hub. And I saw a similar pattern in India and in China, too. With Turks, it was like, we don't have to get into the EU to be respected. And with Chinese, with the Chinese, it's like, we're not poor anymore. We're this economy that the United States is afraid of. And I think there's a certain sense there. And so... 
when I look at the rise of the authoritarians in these countries, I think it's less of this uncertainty and it's actually a result of overconfidence. Or, you know, you a sense of national pride. Like, I appreciated when I did a trip to Russia a couple of years ago, and I just assumed they hated Putin because, you know, they were in, like, a recession based on the sanctions that he imposed on them. And, you know, I've only—I'm American. I've only really—I've I've lived in other countries. But I think in America, you know, we're both of an age, and most people are, have only lived in our country when we've been, like, the dominant world power. And we don't know what that's not like. So I, I was struck by this sort, of this, this sort of wounded sense of pride Russians have about losing the Cold War and just having this strong men who felt, they felt like was standing up for them and that they, yeah, they didn't need us. They, they're tired of being jerked around and they're tired of, you know, I'm sure Turkey is tired of like having this EU carrot dangled before them and it constantly being taken away. And you know what? We're not so bad. We know what we're doing. We're a healthy economy. We've got smart people. We're productive. And sort of I, I could see why it's be, someone standing up for them on the world stage would be very seductive. Republican Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, he recently coined the term cosmopolitan economy. And by that, he believes that financial institutions that operate across national borders wreak havoc on a country's ability to plan for a sustainable future. Does that sort of rhetoric foreshadow a move towards financial deglobalization? Well, like a lot of populist statements, when you unpack that, there's some interesting things that are kind of true in there and some things in there that just really aren't true at all. First of all, you know, countries are really regulated. You know, financial institutions are regulated. But he does bring up a good point, which the IMF is honestly revisiting as well, which is capital flows. It isn't so much that they're sort of working for the 1%. I mean, Financial institutions move money around, and the ability to move money around is a big reason a lot of people in developing countries have gotten a lot richer. But on the other hand, you know, when you're subject to capital flows from another country, they can be fickle. And, you know, you certainly saw this in the Asian financial crisis, and it is a huge source of vulnerability that you have all this foreign investment, and then it can just disappear at a moment's notice. If we have a recession and everyone wants to pull out of emerging markets, that's a huge source of risk. So, I mean, this would have been anathema in the IMF in the 90s, but now they're really thinking about capital controls just so countries can have more predictability. So I think in that statement, there's a lot of sort of populism that maybe isn't quite right, but he is bringing up a larger point that people are really discussing and I think is valid. Allison, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I think humans have a need to be productive. Humans have had a lot of sort of economic challenges thrown their way, and we end up in these really sort of, we go astray sometimes and bad things happen. But at the end of the day, we have a need to come together and be productive. And I think no matter what happens with technology, and I think even if some, if some nasty things happen, in the end, we'll get it right. Allison, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Allison Schrager, an economist and lecturer at New York University and the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.